We'll hear argument first this morning in case 07-1209, Peek versus Sanders et al. Mr. Miller. It please the Court. Congress has directed the Veterans Court to take due account of the rule of prejudicial error in reviewing administrative determinations of veterans' benefits. For four reasons, the Court of Appeals erred in holding that the Veterans Court should presume the existence of prejudice whenever it finds that the VA has erred in providing notice to a claimant. First, Section 7261, the Veterans Court Prejudicial Error Statute, uses language that is essentially identical to that of the APA's prejudicial error provision. And when Congress adopted that language in 1988, it was understood to place upon the party challenging an agency's action the burden of showing that any error was prejudicial. Second, a notice error of the kind at issue here does not have the natural effect. Why do you you say that, that it was understood so? Because of the Attorney General's uh, commentary on the APA? The principal reason that it was uh, understood is because uh, the uniform practice in the Courts of Appeals as of 1988 uh, was to place upon uh, challengers to agency action uh, the burden of showing prejudice uh, from an error. And the uh, uh, Congress was well aware of that. Uh, and the, in particular, the uh, Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, uh, in explaining its choice of the rule, cited uh, the Ninth Circuit's decision in Sane and Line Fishermen's Union, which expressly stated uh, that the burden law. You, you basically have four cases in the Courts of Appeals to support that proposition, right? Uh, no, Your Honor, it, it, it's considerably more than that. And the, the, only, and the only cases that even suggest uh, or that, that lend any support to a contrary rule uh, are in the very different context uh, of notice and comment rulemaking uh, under, rule 550, uh, under Section 553. Uh, and the reason that that's different is really uh, for, for two reasons. Uh, and that is that the, <clears throat> a, a, the interest that Section 553 is intended to protect is not uh, the interest of any particular uh, commenter in any particular outcome of a rulemaking. Uh, it's the interest of the public in having the agency's uh, decision-making fully informed uh, by all of the, the relevant comments. Well, but, but this is, I mean, it's kind of, it's the first Notice it gets the ball rolling. I mean, I think it's like, you know, two teams and you don't tell one of the teams when the game starts. And then you say, well, it doesn't matter because they would have lost anyway. There's no prejudice. Well, I mean, the, the reason that in, in a great many cases there's not going to be prejudice from an error of the kind at issue here uh, is that the VA has an informal non-adversarial system that provides multiple layers of review and many opportunities to correct the effect of any initial notice error. And that's illustrated by the procedural history of these cases. Um, to take Ms. Simmons's case, for an example. Well, can we go back to the question um, that was first posed? We have never held that every agency, you know, agencies come in many sizes and shapes, that in all cases the APA places the burden on the appellant or the petitioner. But this Court has never held that, that across the board, no matter what agency we're talking about, that's the rule? That, that, that's correct. This Court has not held that. Uh, but Congress was aware that uh, the uniform practice, certainly in agency adjudications uh, in, in the Courts of Appeals, was to place the burden on challengers. Uh, and Congress — When was Congress aware of this? When the, when the Administrative Procedure Act was passed, you mean? Uh, no. The, the, the statute at issue here is part of the Veterans Judicial Review Act of 1988. And so the, the relevant time for looking at — uh, what the practice was is as of 1988 when Congress incorporated the language from the APA and placed it in Section 7261. 
and as of 1988, uh, it was clear that the burden was on uh, challengers. And, and can I can I ask you to clarify exactly what you mean by the the burden of uh, showing prejudice? I, is it correct that? Neither of the following, if, to borrow the terminology that you would use in formal litigation, I understand this is not formal litigation before an agency, but to borrow that terminology, is it correct that the issue here doesn't concern either the burden of production or the risk of non-persuasion before the uh, administrative agency, before the regional office? In other words, if, there's, if there is evidence that the veteran, as opposed to the VA, has to produce, that doesn't change. And whatever the standard is that has to be met to show an entitlement to benefits, that doesn't change either. So that all that's involved here is whether whatever showing needs to be made is to be made on appeal or on remand. That's that's correct. We're talking about what showing needs to be made uh, on appeal. And as this Court suggested in O'Neill, you know, the, the burden language uh, is perhaps more appropriate for the context where there's, you know, people are presenting uh, competing evidentiary submissions to a fact finder, and that's not quite what we have here. That, that's in O'Neill says that, that's which most of the court joined, and the reason that it says it is because it just confuses everybody, at least me, to talk about burden in this context. I think if O'Neill is right, it says, what this is is not involving a jury, not involving it. Just what Justice Alita says, and and following that through, what you'd ask, you say to the judge, judge, your job is to decide this, decide, decide whether you think that the one side has sh- whether there is error or whether there whether the error is harmless or whether it isn't. Decide it. Now it could be, in a rare instance. The judge just can't decide. He's in grave doubt. And so what we're talking about is what to do in that ver- what should be a very, very rare instance. Now, when I read this case, I thought that the, the, the Veterans Affairs is absolutely common sense on this. It says when you are really don't know what to do, judge, if the veteran got no notice at all, then probably the error was harmful. But if he got the basic notice, and all that's at issue is who should produce what or whether he thinks that uh, he didn't know that he's supposed to produce a lot of information, well, there, you know, it would be pretty rare that it was harmful. And so you better say to him, veteran, why did this hurt you? You know, that's all common sense, and it seemed to me that that's what the Veterans Court was saying, and then the Federal Circuit, unfortunately, like I might have done, too, got it all mixed up with this burden of proof language. So now you tell me legally, is that result which I'm talking about sensible, and if so, how do I get there legally? I think just to clarify, the the reason that we have used uh, the the language of burden is simply — I'm not criticizing you for that. I'm I'm not — it's not a criticism. I'm just really trying to figure out how to get to what I see as common sense legally. I I appreciate that. I I, I, — the the point that we're trying to emphasize is that in the ordinary course, uh, the Veterans Court, like any court, uh, is going to act on the basis of arguments that are presented to it by the party. And so when we, when we speak of a burden, we mean that uh, the challenger uh, has the obligation, if it wants the Veterans Court to find prejudice, uh, to articulate some theory of how there was prejudice. Uh, and that theory is he didn't know anything about this, got no notice whatsoever. So he didn't know. 
that he's supposed to produce some more information or he'll lose. That's the theory. Well, but, but in, order to, in order to connect that error, I mean, that, that's, that's an identification of an error uh, under the Veterans Claims Assistance Act. But to connect that error to something They connect it by prejudice. saying normally a veteran who isn't that knowledgeable, you know, not everybody is a genius in law. Uh, when he doesn't get a notice that tells him you've got to produce something more, you lose, he might forget to produce something more. That's the theory. If he has something more, and what we are saying is that in order to get a remand, uh, the claimant, who, who by the time they get to the Veterans Court, has already identified the error, uh, has made an argument to explain to the Court that there was, in fact, an error. Uh, at that point, they ought to explain how the error affected them. If it prevented them from putting in some piece of evidence, they ought to tell the Court, here's the piece of evidence that I would have put in. Well, usually when you have an appellate court, you know, it's a hard question, they're evenly divided, the case is resolved on the basis of the standard of review. What is the presumption uh, if it's a close case? And why isn't that all sort of what we're talking about here? It's a close case, and the judge, the panel, says, well, this side has the burden of persuasion, so we're going to come out the other way. Because I think in a, in a case where the, like these, uh, where the claimant has not identified anything that they would have done differently, uh, it, it isn't a close case with respect to the question of prejudice. Now, to be clear, if a claimant can articulate something they would have done differently, we are not saying that they have the obligation of showing that the outcome uh, definitely would have been different or even more likely than not would have been different. Uh, it would be sufficient uh, after identifying with some particularity what they would have done differently uh, if they could show that there's some reasonable well, what probability. What if they would have done differently is get a different medical test or done something like that or had the doctor in the prior testing who prepared the uh, diagnosis look at something that they didn't have them look at before? In other words, it's not simply the absence of documents that they know they can submit or could have committed, uh, submitted. Um, it's, it's that type of question. And nobody knows. I mean, you don't know what would have happened if they had the doctor look at this issue that now turns out to be critical. But when they got, if they had gotten the right notice, they might have had time to do that. Well, that I, depending on the state of a record, uh, of the record in a particular case, that might be sufficient to show uh, a reasonable probability that the outcome would have been different. But in a lot of cases, it won't be. And I think Ms. Simmons's case uh, is a pretty good example of that. But if the, if the government ha- has the obligation at the very first to tell the veteran what the veteran must produce to substantiate the claim, and the government doesn't do that, why shouldn't it be the responsibility of the government to say to the court, this is what, if we had done what we were supposed to do, this is what we would have included in our notice. And looking at that, the court can tell whether there's anything the veteran might have done. But why shouldn't the government at least have the obligation to, to say what it would have done had it complied with the statute, what it would have said specifically in this case? Well, I mean, had the government complied, or to, to take Simmons's case as an example, uh, when the VA sent her uh, the notice letter, uh, her claim was for an increased rating. She had hearing loss that had already been determined to be service-connected, uh, but was not sufficiently severe to be cons- compensable. And she said, you know, my, my hearing has gotten worse. It now is severe enough to be a compensable disability. The notice letter uh, that was sent to her, which is at page 43 of the Joint Appendix, uh, was incorrect in that it, it simply described the general requirements for establishing service connection. It didn't specifically say, uh, to make out an increased rating claim, you have to show that your hearing 
uh, has become worse. But uh, as soon as she got a decision from the regional office, which is the first-line uh, decision-maker in the VA system, uh, she was uh, told that the reason her claim had been denied was because uh, her hearing loss was not sufficiently severe uh, under the table. And there's a fairly mechanical application uh, of the uh, you have a certain number of decibels in a certain in each year uh, yields a certain disability rating. Uh, and the, the notice that she got uh, from the regional office explained all of that and cited the regulation and reproduced the, the tables. Uh, so at that point, uh, she was aware uh, of why her claim had been denied and what was missing, namely uh, evidence that her hearing uh, had become worse. And she had been given at that point uh, a series of hearing examinations, of uh, examinations of her hearing by the by VA doctors, uh, and the results of those were all reproduced uh, in the decision that she got. Uh, and yet the uh, Veterans Court found that, that the government had failed to carry its burden of showing a lack of prejudice uh, because we hadn't show, we couldn't show uh, as a matter of law uh, that there was no way she could obtain additional so, evidence. So fine, so if I get that record, and if it is the way you describe, I'm not in grave doubt. No problem. The record's the way you describe it. She, she knew everything she was supposed to know. No, so there's no harmful error, okay? We're only talking about cases where there is real doubt in the judge's mind about whether this failure of the agency did or did not hurt the woman or man. Now, when in doubt, we have the Veterans Court telling us the best way to administer this stuff is when they get no notice at all, and you're really in doubt, Judge. You don't know if it was harmful or not. Here's what you do. Assume it was harmful. They're the ones who know. I don't know. With respect, Your Honor, I don't think that that's a a fair description of the effect of the rule adopted by the Court below. Then if it's supposed, then we look at O'Neill, we read the first paragraph, it was what this Court said, and we all held it, and therefore we say uh, those are the cases we're talking about where you're in doubt, and when you're in doubt, go proceed as the Veterans Court told you in terms of who has to show what. I, I think, and again, this case is a good illustration of why that, that, that sort of grave doubt that you're describing uh, doesn't arise uh, in a case like this, where at no stage of the proceedings has the claimant uh, offered anything that they would have done any differently. Uh, if, they, if they can't say, you know, here's what would have happened differently, then there really isn't any doubt as to what will happen on a remand. If there's a remand and they don't do anything different, uh, the result is not going to be any different. Um, and so maybe I'm not following as well as I should, but it seems to me you're suggesting there was no error here. N- no, there, there certainly there was an error. And what was the error? The, the error was that uh, the initial uh, letter that was sent to her uh, describing what the evidence needed to uh, that she needed to submit in order to establish her claim uh, misidentified that evidence. It, it described uh, the elements of a, a general claim. Uh, for service connectedness, it didn't specifically explain uh, what was needed uh, to establish an increased rating claim. Are you saying that that error was not prejudicial because the earlier information she had received gave her everything she needed? Uh, the, the principal reason why that error was not prejudicial uh, is because the only way that she could have uh, received benefits for an increased rating claim is if there were evidence that her hearing had become worse. And she had a VA hearing test. Uh, that said that her hearing did not meet uh, the scheduler criteria for 
uh, being well, then, If that's the case, why wasn't that statement you just been made sufficient to discharge the, your burden of showing no, no prejudice? The, 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 the fact, I mean, I, 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 we, we believe that it, it should have been, uh, but under the rule as, uh, as imposed by the courts below, uh, it clearly wasn't. Um, uh, under the uh, decision of the Federal Circuit, uh, the VA has the burden of showing that there was no way that benefits could have been awarded as a matter of law. Uh, and that, in effect, requires the VA to prove a negative by demonstrating the, the non-existence of any evidence anywhere uh, that might have uh, been material to the claim. You know, it's, it's, easy, uh, it's easy to look back and view this in sort of abstract legal terms, but we're dealing with lay people who are trying to get something from the government, which is always a difficult thing, and they get one notice saying, you've got to show that this was during the service, then they get another notice or decision saying it wasn't severe enough. Uh, why is it so difficult when the government made a mistake in dealing with this layperson who's just trying to get benefits to which they're entitled to say the government has to show um, that it didn't make any difference, rather than requiring the, uh, the layperson to do that? Well, because I mean, I there are two responses to that. The first is uh, it's important to keep in mind the stage of the proceedings at which this inquiry becomes relevant. Uh, the prejudicial error is only an issue once the claimant has reached the Veterans Court, which is an adversarial judicial proceeding where most claimants uh, do have counsel, um, and they've identified an error <clears throat> and they've explained to the court, you know, here's what the error was. Uh, so that's the stage at which it would be incumbent upon them to articulate how the error might have affected them. Um, and I, I think the, the other point to be made is that under the rule of the Court of Appeals, uh, it's going to be very, very difficult in many cases for the government uh, to discharge the burden of showing that there was no evidence that could possibly have been produced. And what's that, what's that, that is going to result in uh, is a large number of remands. And as between the, the two courts, the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims and the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, do we owe either of them, maybe not deference in the Chevron sense, uh, but some deference just because of their expertise in dealing with this claims. And if that is so, do we owe more deference to the Court of Appeals for the Veterans Claim? I'm not not aware that, that this Court has ever suggested I mean, we, we, it should it, be. It's, a, it's an issue of law, so I take it as de novo. Yeah, it is, and, it is certainly that, and it is. But in, 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 in the exercise of that review, don't we have to give some uh, weight to the determination of the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, which sees these claims all the time. I, I, I actually thought that that's where you were going to start out, because you cited uh, 7261, which, which says that the Court of Appeals for the Federal Claims uh, shall what, give a due effect to the uh, — don't take due account of the rule of prejudicial error. And I, I think you could get from that that, the, that they have a certain amount of latitude in determining what the best rule is. But you're not going to — you don't tell us that. No, I mean, and I, I think that by uh, adopting language from the APA, uh, using the same language that applies to all kinds of judicial review of agency actions, uh, Congress strongly uh, suggested that it didn't want a unique rule uh, for uh, judicial review of VA determinations. And so I, I think there's, there's no reason to defer to — uh, either the Veterans Court or the Federal Circuit on this general question of the standard of prejudicial review. May I ask a factual question? You said most of these people are represented by counsel. There used to be a rule that they, they could only be paid $10 a, a case. Is that still in effect? 
the, when I said they were represented by counsel, I meant in the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, not oh, I see, the not during the nice uh, prius proceedings. In, in the in the administrative proceeding, the restrictions on payment of counsel have now been relaxed mm-hmm. at the Board of Veterans Appeals stage. Uh, so they're, they're generally there's not counsel at the regional office, but once the case reaches uh, the board, uh, there can be counsel. And there can be counsel, but is it really typical? Uh, the, I don't know the statistics on that because that the it statute be a dramatic was quite change. Because years ago, I remember a case in which the court upheld a ten-dollar fee limit on the notion that these people didn't need lawyers at all, which struck me as a little strange. <laughs> well, uh, in, in any event, that, that is no longer the case at the board level, and even those claimants who do not have counsel, uh, the great majority of them. I think about three-quarters at the regional office level and 98 percent at the board level are represented by uh, some sort of non-attorney representative, uh, either service organizations like the American Legion uh, or many states have organizations that assist claimants. Uh, Ms. Simmons, for example, was represented by a North Carolina state agency uh, before the uh, VA. So there there is some assistance to claimants there. Mr. Mr. Miller, can you help me out on how the system works in, in, in practice in a different way? One of your answers a few moments ago was that uh, when, when I think it was Ms. Simmons uh, was told why she lost, uh, she, in effect, got as much notice as she would have needed to have uh, to, in effect, do better on a remand. My first question is, is there an automatic right to a remand? There, if you're talking about a- after the initial decision uh, from the regional office, there is not an automatic right to a remand, but there is an automatic right to a de novo review uh, by a, a more senior official at the regional office. With, a, with new evidence? Y- yes. You can get a hearing. You can present new evidence. to the de- It's a decision review officer. And then if you're still dissatisfied with the resolution after that, you can go to the board. Uh, and you can get a hearing before the board. The board's okay. review is de novo. But even even on, on the the the, the, um, the the functioning of the system as as you have explained it, uh, at the at the very least, uh, the person has. Let's assume uh, Ms. Simmons says, "Oh, now I understand, and I will get the following piece of evidence, which I didn't realize was my responsibility." Even on that explanation, uh, it means uh, that, the, that the claimant is going to have to go through another stage in the administrative litigation process. So I, I assume that ought to count as, as some sort of prejudice, uh, and I assume it's, it's something that, uh, as it were, the burden of which the, the, the VA ought to bear rather than the claimant. Well, I mean, I guess to the extent that the delay in adjudicating the claim is a kind of prejudice, it's not a prejudice that would, in any sense, be cured by a remand for further proceedings, which will just result in, in further delay. If the uh, — um, uh, I'm sorry. Oh, and I, I would just add that the, the effective date of the claim, which is uh, the date as of which benefits are awarded, uh, is the date that the claim was filed. So there would — you wouldn't be losing money uh, when you — except for the — no, but you're going to have to go through another stage of litigation. I mean, one of the functions of the burden rule, and it may be a, a too subtle a function to worry much about, but one of the functions is uh, to put the party with the burden on, the no- on notice that if you fail uh, in your obligation, um, you're the one who's going to have to pay unless you can convince everybody that there was, in fact, no harm done by this. And this induces 
the party with the burden uh, to do what the, the primary obligation says the party ought to do. And, and on, your, on, on your analysis, uh, since the government would not have that obligation, uh, the government has less of an inducement to follow the, the statutory obligation. The, the, the government has a, a very strong inducement uh, to follow the statutory obligation. I mean, like, like every agency. Well, it uh, may have a strong inducement, but I'm talking about a stronger one. If, well, if the government knows that uh, it is going to, to bear the burden of any doubt about the significance of its failure, uh, to, to some extent, I suppose, that is, that is going to induce the government to be on its toes. Well, I, I, I suppose that's right. Um, but I think in, in a lot of cases, I mean, it, the, the VA in, in all cases strives conscientiously to comply with its, its statutory obligations. The uh, notice requirements, you know, as described in Section 5103, uh, are, are fairly vague. Uh, they have, the, the notice has to be tailored at least to some extent to the nature of the claim that's presented. Uh, and every time, you know, the, the Veterans Court or the Federal Circuit elaborates on uh, exactly what kind of notice is required, uh, to the extent that the VA wasn't aware of that elaboration uh, before, there are going to have to be remands in all of those pending cases. Uh, well, that's, that, I mean, that's the, the essential problem of common law adjudication, and I, there's not much we can do about that. But it, it, it's a problem that is particularly acute here, uh, given the volume of claims uh, that the VA has. Well, to what is the experience when, when a case is remanded? It goes back to the. Does it go back to the regional? Suppose the the veteran is now given an opportunity to present whatever uh, additional substantiation. The, the claim, when remanded from the uh, Court of Appeals for the Veterans for Veterans Claims, goes back to the board. Uh, in most instances, the board would then uh, send it back to the regional office for further development. Um, if I could preserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, Mr. Miller. Mr. Mead. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, I would like to make three points. First, because notice is integral to the system that Congress designed, the VA's failure to provide notice is likely to prejudice the veteran. Second, it would be difficult for the veteran and comparatively easy for the government to carry a burden. It would be difficult to the veteran because under the government's rule, the veteran would need to engage in a speculative exercise, identifying what evidence would have been developed had the veteran been notified, and had he received the full assistance of the agency? Now, why is that? Why is it a speculative enterprise? It's a, if the if you're correct, and the proper resolution of a case like this is a remand, let's say all the way back to the regional office, and if before the regional office, it's the veteran who will need to come forward with some evidence supporting the claim. Why does it make sense to remand the case to the regional office if there is no possibility that when the case gets back there, the veteran can come forward with the medical evidence that's needed? Two reasons, Justice Alito. First, it's not clear, even in the Veterans Court, that the veteran will have notice of what's required, a point I would like to address. But second, if it's remanded, the process will develop as it should have in the first place. 
because under the statutory scheme, there is both the VA and the veteran, the informed veteran, who have joint duties. And together, during an interactive process, they develop the evidence together. And during this interactive process, to answer Justice Stevens' question, the veteran is prohibited from hiring a lawyer. Without having the most basic notice of what's required, the veteran cannot participate in this process. And the only way we can know how the process would really work would be to give the veteran the notice that he's entitled to in the first place and then allow the process to unfold as it should. But what if you, you have a situation, and I think actually your, your co-respondent's case illustrates this better than, than yours, but you have a situation where the record as it's developed contains uh, some evidence that supports the, the veteran's position some evidence that supports the position in favor of denial of benefits. The, 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 the Veterans Administration, all the way up through the process, finds that the evidence uh, contrary to the veteran's position is, is much stronger and denies the claim on that basis. The veteran says, I didn't get notice of what exactly I needed to prove. Now, if on remand to the regional office, it's still going to be, it's going to be up to the veteran to come forward with medical evidence showing hearing loss or vision, uh, connecting the vision loss to something that happened in the service. Why does it make sense to send it back if there's no possibility that the veteran is going to be able to do that when the case gets back? Well, the answer is, uh, first of all, that we don't know how the process would unfold once the veteran has notice. Even if there's evidence in the record, we don't know what evidence would have been developed had the veteran had proper notice. In addition, veterans often are not uh, Excuse me, why, 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 why is that? Why, why, I'm not sure I follow you on that point. Once he's gone up to the next level and finds what the notice should have told him, why can't he come up with it then? Well, for a few reasons. First of all — You say it's a de novo, right, at, at this next level. First of all, it's unclear whether the veteran would even have notice even at that point. None of the other requirements that the agency is required to give are the same as the notice requirement. However, if in appropriate cases they have given the actual notice by the time they reach the Veterans Court, they can use that to rebut the prejudice. And that's what the Veterans Court said in Vasquez Flores. In, in your case, did the, uh, your client attend the initial hearing? Um, there was a medical examination that she didn't attend. There was a question of where the notice was sent. And this is at 70A of the petition's appendix. There was confusion. Apparently, notices were sent to the wrong address by the agency. Well, what's the first time that your client knew that this claim was going to be processed at a particular time, or the first time your client knew it had been denied? I I just was never clear on the facts of what happened here. The, The notice was lost in the mail, so how did she know there was a hearing at all? Or did she? She, rec- she later informed the agency that she had changed her address, but even it appears that the further notices were sent to the wrong address. For our you know, client, I'm just trying to play out. It seems to me at the first hearing, if she, in fact, is there, they said, well, now, you, you know, you have to give us some notice. And, it, and at that point, 
or you some, some documentation. And at that point, at the initial hearing, everybody knows who has to produce what. Well, there's not necessarily a hearing. There was a medical examination that was supposed to be scheduled that she didn't attend, partly because of confusion of where the notice was sent. Um, is there the usually is an initial hearing? No, there's only a hearing if the veteran requests it. Okay. So there's no hearing unless the veteran requests it. So here we have a, a situation where the veteran did not know what she needed to provide. She had two sets of claims, one for a left ear, one for a right ear. Neither claim was intuitive, and she couldn't figure out what she needed to do without the, the notice. So why not just say that? What's the big problem of saying judge, and then you say just what you said? And well, then the judge, again, won't be in doubt anymore. So well, there's no, no need for this case. Because well, either, 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 the, either the veterans agency will say, look, I walked the, that veteran through the process. I walked him through the process. Walking him through the process, he was told everything he needed to know. And, and there's no real problem here. It's just a formality that he didn't get the notice. And if that's true, I'm not in any doubt unless the veteran tells me that that's wrong and here was something. Okay. On the other hand, we have your case. In your case, she didn't go to the doctor. She went to the doctor. Maybe she would have found something out. Again, I have no doubt there's harmful error. So this case was a theoretical law professor's case that's never going to come up because, because there's never any doubt. Either the VA did walk them through it and there's no deal, big deal, because she can't come up with anything, or she can come up with something. Well, I agree that burdens only matter in a handful of cases, but it makes sense to put the burden on the government for a number of reasons. It certainly does. Does it make sense to tell the government, government, you have to come up with every possible conceivable factual scenario and prove there wasn't a man from Mars who came in and, you know, I mean, th- that doesn't But that's not what's being asked for here. First of all, if the the veteran actually received notice during this dialogue that the government describes, then the government can point to that as a way to disprove prejudice. Second of all, veterans are often vulnerable. They're often unrepresented in the veterans court. Under the latest statistics, 64 percent are unrepresented at the beginning of the veterans court, 24 percent at the conclusion of the veterans court. Many have psychological and mental disabilities like post-traumatic stress disorder. 12 percent of those who currently receive disabilities receive uh, benefits for PTSD. And it's not clear. This is not lawyers. This is not doctors trying to receive benefits. This is not just lay people. They're veterans who serve the country. No, I know all there. this. And why don't you just tell the judge that and say, look at my client. Judge, look at my client. My client obviously isn't going to understand what to do unless the client is told. And here my client wasn't told. I'm the judge. I'm not in any doubt you're going to win. Okay. So what I can't figure out is how to deal with this case, which, as I said, strikes me as a law professor's case that shouldn't make any difference in any real situation. The reason is that it's helpful to have presumptions to deal with the typical case where we have, in our case, a first element notice error, a question where the veteran does not even know what evidence he needs to put forward. That, in that case, it makes sense, because of the high likelihood of prejudice, to have a general rule that the burden should be on the government and not on the veteran. And that's — As a showing of prejudice, the idea that, well, here, look at my client, he, you know, as a layperson, didn't know what to do, that's not going to be adequate, is it? I don't think it would be. And that's why it makes sense to have a general presumption. In cases where the government can either show that — 
the process worked as it should have or that the uh, veteran actually received notice during the process, it can rebut that prejudice. In fact, in 2008 alone, the government has been able to do so. It has done so at least a dozen times in a number of cases, rebutting the burden of prejudice that was established by the Veterans Court. What's wrong with uh, Mr. Miller's response that at the very first level of review, you can start all over. At that point, you know precisely why your claim was denied. Well, again, there, there are mer- various levels of review, but the notice to start that first level of appellate review does not necessarily give the veteran the notice that she is entitled to. It well, that was my question. Is it? Is it, it I take it it's more than just a stamp saying denied, right? There's well, some explanation in every case? Exactly. There is a statutory requirement that a statement of reasons need to be provided, but the statement of reasons don't necessarily correlate to the detailed requirements under the, the notice statute. Under Vasquez-Flores, what the Veterans Court said was that the notice needs to be quite detailed, and the, the denial letter in a particular case might not map onto those particular requirements. In October of this year, Congress went farther and said, we want these notice letters to be even more detailed. We want to give the veterans more notice, which shows that Congress is concerned about these notice, these notice letters and wants to make it clear um, to the veteran what is required. I want to answer a point that Justice Alito raised before. We are not asking here for a presumption of benefits. All we're asking for is a remand so that the veteran can get notice and to have the process proceed as it was meant to in the original circumstance. Does, does the a notice can be given, skipped entirely, as it was in Simmons' case? A notice could be given, but it's defective. It can be defective in a major way. It can leave out, you said Congress recently uh, required a more detailed notice. Do we treat all those like as, as long as the, the notice doesn't measure up fully to the statutory requirement, then the veteran goes back to square one? And, and so you wouldn't make any distinction between whether the notice was not given at all and the case where the notice was given, but it was incomplete. Uh, the question of whether the notice is okay or not is a question for the Veterans Court, a factual finding. Generally, though, I would agree with you that either no notice or incomplete notice are the same and would trigger a first notice error. There would be cases, I suspect, where the notice was erroneous but only on a technical ground that the Veterans Court would not think of as being a first-level notice error. One final point I would like to make, Your Honor, is that in passing this statute, Congress made it clear that it wanted to assist all veterans, including those whose claims did not appear meritorious on their face. And it did so by overruling the decision of Morton v. West from the Veterans Court. That case had said that a veteran needs to meet a a certain minimal threshold before receiving the VA's assistance. That first, a veteran needs to show that a claim is well-grounded. Congress rejected that in passing the statute and said, Congress wants to help all veterans, including those whose claims don't seem meritorious on their face, and including those who can't make a threshold requirement. And Congress specifically rejected the policy rationale of the Veterans Court and said that they want, Congress wants to use resources to help all veterans, including those whose claims are not meritorious on its face. Thank you, Your Honor. 
Thank you, Mr. Mead. Mr. Lippman. Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, um, Justice Pryor, I'd like to address um, one of the observations you've made uh, applying uh, O'Neill and Kodiakus and the grave doubt standard. The problem here is that those standards assume a fully developed record. And that's why it's not a perfect fit here, because the very notice or failure or defective notice prevents a fully developed record. So what I was trying to get to, which I don't see how to quite get there, it seems to me that if, if something really went wrong, if there's, if there's no notice that veteran, you have to put in some material or you're going to lose, if there's no notice of that, and he really didn't get any notice during all this cooperative process, then I think the Veterans Court is right. At that point, I think it's fair to assume that he's hurt. But if he got the notice, I mean, there'll be a few cases where he had nothing to produce, but a lot of me would have had something to produce. So that's, they know it. We don't know. The Veterans Court knows. Now, on the other three matters, who's supposed to produce what? And do you have general knowledge you can produce whatever you want? I would think it would be very rare that a veteran was hurt if he knows the first by not knowing the second, third, and fourth. And therefore, I'd think he better come forth to explain in the brief, in the brief, why this mattered. Now, that's what it seemed to me the Veterans Court set up. They know about it. They set that up. It's common sense. So how do I get to a legal result that says just that, or can I, or should I? I don't believe you should. And if my case could be used as an example, your case is one where the veteran did get what they call the first-level notice. Correct. So if Justice, the implication of Justice Breyer's question is that your client would lose because your client did get the first-level notice. And you say, but that's not good enough. That's correct. correct. I, he did not get the second and third element notices. That is um, — what the government said it will get and what he uh, was required to get. This is the, the letter, part of the letter, critical part of the letter he got. It said, we are making reasonable efforts to help you get private records or evidence necessary to support your claim. So he had a, every reason to assume that the, that the, um, the, the VA would get the, the evidence that was necessary. But why does that make disturbed. sense in your case? I think this illustrates what is troubling to me about the Federal Circuit's decision, but maybe I'm missing a point. Your, your client was denied benefits for failure to show causal connection, to, to show that his, his vision loss is, is service-related. He provided evidence from two private ophthalmologists or optometrists providing very weak cause to, uh, evidence of causation. One said it was not inconceivable that this was the, the cause of it. He was examined by two VA doctors who said it was more likely that this was caused by a post-service infection rather than by uh, an explosion while he, was in, while he was in the service. Now, if the case — if the notice was defective, why does it not make sense to say to, to, to your client, show us that you can come up with some medical evidence 
that shows that this is service-related, something more than a doctor who says it's not inconceivable. Then it makes sense to remand it. But if he can't do it on appeal, what sense does it make to remand it where the same failure to provide evidence is going to doom his claim? Well, the two answers to that, Your Honor. Um, the first is the government makes a proposition that all we need to do is offer an explanation. But in legal terms, that's a proffer on appeal. And that is every bit as evidential as the actual evidence itself. Now, if we're, if we're to have a whole practice of proffers, it, it opens up the Pandora's box. I mean, where, where do you stop um, if we make an, an exception for extra record evidence when the, when the statutes make it clear that the evidence or whatever you're using has to be before the agency? Why is that such a tough thing to do? It sounds like it's sort of, is there some law out there that stops you from saying in the brief, in a paragraph, say, we'd just like you to know, Judge, that we had some evidence here, or we have some now, that we want to present to them. Uh, that's all. And, and then if I see that, I'd say, my goodness, uh, and you describe it in three sentences. Now, what, what is the Constitution doesn't stop you from doing that, does it? I mean, well, well, what, what stops you from doing well, that? Well, the statutes stop you from doing <laughs> Stop you, but the Veterans Court said to do it. So they're, 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 they're the ones who know this area, and they said you should have to do it. Yeah, but, but in all due respect, I think the Veterans Court got it wrong. I mean, the veter if you look at the line of authority in the Between Veterans Between me and the Veterans Court, as to who knows best how to work this system, it's 10 to 1, and it's not me. Okay. L let's look at it this way. Let's say, let's take it outside the VCA context. A veteran has a right to a hearing, an evidentiary hearing, upon request. Let's say he requests the hearing, and for whatever reason, the VA doesn't schedule one. He, he loses that right, even though he requests it. Are we then now to have proffers on the Court of Appeals saying, well, I would have said this, I would have said this, I would have What they've decided there is if there's no notice at all, no, you don't have to have a proffer, because it's up to the agency to do just what you want. But if it's one of these other three far more technical things which occur far more rarely, on that one, you better tell the judge in the brief how it makes a difference. Now, that, that's their conclusion. What's wrong with that? Well, there's, there's really no analysis to it. I mean, it's sort of an intuitive uh, distinction. In, in, in my case, it doesn't work. And... Well, I think well the, the, sta the statute says, and this is consistent with Justice, Justice Breyer's line of questioning, uh, that the Veterans Court, the Court of Appeals, uh, the Veterans Court of Appeals, uh, shall give due account to the notice, uh, to the rule of prejudicial error. That seems to me to indicate that it has some discretion in how to decide the harmless error rules that it will apply, and that it knows more about it in Justice Breyer's terms, uh, than either we or the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. Why can't I get that out of the statute? Well, I, I guess you'd have to reconcile the more specific statute that, that deals with um, only being able to submit um, evidence or, or any other material um, at, the time, at the time of the agency adjudication. In other words, I don't see that statute allowing um, post-agency uh, adjudication proffers or, or even submitting evidence. I mean, 
just by the very line of your questioning, it seems to me that you find it interchangeable whether you assert it in in your brief um, that this is what I would have gotten or whether you would have submitted the evidence itself. They're both evidential. And another problem, it, which is your really position, Your position seems to be not that the, the government should have to show prejudice, but as applied to a case like yours, that there's an irrebuttable presumption of prejudice. And what could the government show? That they would have to show that there is not a single ophthalmologist in the country who, if he or she examined Mr. Sanders, would find that uh, the, the vision loss was attributable to uh, a bazooka explosion in World War II? No, Your Honor. The, 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 what the government must show is, is well set forth in the Federal Circuit's opinion. It must show that the claimant had either actual knowledge of what he needed to submit, second, effectively had sort of constructive knowledge, in other words, a reasonable claimant would have had notice, or three, that the claim couldn't be entitled to benefits as a matter of law. So that's the beauty. Well, you, yeah, but I don't understand that. You mean, let's suppose, contrary to your wishes, that the client was not hurt. It was hurt by some other thing, nothing to do with the bazooka. That's not your client. That's the imaginary client. But everything else is the same. Well, does that mean because they forgot to tell the client that the client has to go and produce some evidence and she thought the Veterans Administration would produce all the evidence because they forgot that your client wins and gets the money? Well, I mean, that, that doesn't I mean, seem — He wouldn't get the money, okay, because all, all we're talking about a remand, not a — right, I know. Now you're going to be back in the remand, and you now have to produce some evidence, don't you? Or you lose? Correct. Correct. All right. why so we? then why is it a big deal that you summarize what you're going to produce in the brief? We're back where we started. Well, well let me answer it this way. Let, let assume we do make proffers, as you suggest, um, at the uh, Veterans I want to call them a proffer. I just want to say a description in the brief of how you're hurt. Well, in a legal sense, I consider it the same thing. Maybe Your Honors don't, but, but I do. And um, let, let's say he, he proffers or describes in his brief you know, what medical evidence he needs to submit. Now, how can he in good faith make a, make a proffer and speculate on what the doctor, let's say he's seeing a, tr- a treating doctor, and <clears throat> on page 49 on, in the footnote, there's a discussion of what I'm going to explain to you now. But let's say he, he alleges, well, if I'd gotten notice, I would have gone to my treating doctor, and I would have submitted questions, and I would have pro- submitted the claims file, but I can't know in good faith what the doctor would say. It's, it's inherently speculative. And, th- and, then, and that's one good policy reason, apart from the, the clear categor- categorical language of the statute. You started earlier at one point to say how this actually worked out in your case. Could you just spend a minute to explain that? How, how, it, how it makes a difference in your case. Sure. Um, it was a little unclear until a case called, if, if I may answer it this way, Your Honor. Um, Mike, the, the, the Board of Veterans' Appeals decided that there was only one medical evidence that would follow, and that was the 2000 VA exam. And that exam really denied the veteran because there was no um, corroborating medical evidence contemporary with his injury and, and his symptomatology thereafter. If I could have it go back down, what I would do is try to find but what we call buddy statements, lay statements, that would corroborate that he had symptoms from time of service and well on, which would 
which under a case called Buchanan, is sufficient evidence to base a finding of service connection. So why wasn't that enough for you to establish prejudice, regardless of who had the burden? Um, to, to make that allegation on, at the Court of Appeal that I would have gotten this? Mm-hmm. Well, I, fr- frankly, I don't know if I would have gotten it. I mean, I would try. Well, the, you would phrase the prejudice in terms of what you were, would have done, but you weren't able to do, and what you can now go back and do if it's remanded. You don't have to have the evidence that three people would say he, he was complaining about the vision loss at, at the time. It just seems a reasonable thing to, you know, maybe it is reasonable, maybe it's not, but the, 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 the Veterans Administration has more knowledge well, about that. Your Honor, you know, in, in a way, the, the third prong of the Federal Circuit's analysis does that. It tells the government, look, it, if the veteran could, could not prove his claim, no matter what the factual uh, evidentiary development was, then the veteran loses. So, really, it's, it's all contained in the third prong. And, and that's why the Federal Circuit's um, analysis, in my opinion, is so good. It's because it doesn't make you go outside of the record to reach these issues, and it allows the government a lot of room to prove that it's not worthwhile, this claim is not worthwhile to remand. I asked the Court to really carefully look at that, because I, I know the Federal Circuit spent a, must have spent a lot of time in coming up with that uh, analysis. Do you know where this first level, second level, I'm, I'm looking at the statute on page 98A of the petition, and it seems to me all part of one is there's one notice. It doesn't seem to specify a second and a third. It's describing the contents well, uh, as part of that notice, the Secretary shall indicate which portion of the information and evidence is to be provided by the claimant and which portion by the Secretary. The statute seems to be talking about one notice, not first level, second level. Well, they haven't enumerated, Your Honor, as such, but analytically it breaks down to that. The, the fourth element, um, because it, it, it says, look, you'll have to tell the claimant what the contents, you know, what, what you need. Then it says, well, what we're going to get for you, and then that's a second. The third one is what you have to get. The fourth one was engrafted upon it because in the, um, in the regs, uh, 3.159 has a more generalized um, advisement in addition to this. I thought uh, that was taken out, the fourth one. No? Not, not to my knowledge, Your Honor. Oh, and tell me what that is. That's not in the statute. No, it's in uh, 3.159. I don't re- recall the exact uh, — it's 38 CFR 3.159. I, I don't recall offhand the exact subdivision, Your Honor. Well, it, it just tells that, uh, that the Secretary will request the claimant provide any evidence in the claimant's possession that pertains to the claim. Correct. Well, I mean, that's fairly straightforward. It's not as important as uh, — is the first, second, third elements of the uh, of the statute for, for sure, Your Honor? Thank you, Counsel. Thank you, uh, Mr. Miller. You have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I'd like to make just three points. First, on the question of what is provided to the claimant uh, after the denial in the regional office before they get to. The Board of Veterans' Appeals, uh, the regional office issues them a statement of the case, and that's described at uh, 38 CFR 19.29. Uh, and that regulation has fairly detailed requirements about 
what, what has to be in there in terms of a description of the evidence, a description of the applicable laws and regulations, and an analysis of the Board's conclusions or, or the, the regional office's conclusions and its application of the law to the evidence. Uh, the second point. So you think it's perfectly clear from that what gaps need to be filled in? I, in, in many cases it would be, but perhaps there would be some where it wouldn't. And, and of course, in those cases, if there can be some uh, articulation of uh, why it wasn't, then, then we would agree that. Now, at, at that point, uh, is the um, claimant disentitled to have a lawyer? Uh, no. Once, once they've filed the notice of disagreement in the regional office and received the statement of ca- the case, they can then have a lawyer in, in the board. Uh, but at the point they get the notice and they're trying to evaluate the significance of the notice, they are not entitled to a lawyer. Uh, I, I, if you're referring to the, the statement of the case, by the time they receive the statement of the case, they would be at a stage of the proceedings where they could get a lawyer. Um, the, well, no, no. Uh, but what about the notice, the original notice? Oh, the, the, they don't the, have a lawyer at that point. That, just, the, the, just, just a suit question. I didn't. I, I, oh, if, if you meant the original uh, notice required by the, the statute. No, at no. the point if, at the point where the statute requires original notice, they're not entitled to a lawyer. Correct. We, un, we agree on that. Now they've 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 gone through stage one of litigation and they've lost, and they are getting a statement of reason. At that point, are they entitled to have a lawyer? Yes, but. Whether I, I, I guess the, the the situation that I'm concerned with is the the person up to that moment not only does not have but is not entitled to have a lawyer. The person then gets a piece of paper in the mail uh, that says you lost. These are the reasons. Uh, if the person if the claimant then says I don't know what they're talking about, I will go get a lawyer then I can understand at that point a relatively sophisticated mind is going to come in to understand it. But if the client simply reads it and says, I really don't know what they're talking about here, or at least I think I know what they're talking about, uh, and I guess it's hopeless, uh, the, the person is not likely to have legal advice. And what I'm getting at is that the person at that stage, at the moment the notice arrives, is in a position, I would think, of, of extreme relative disadvantage. I mean, I, I, I think that you the, can see where I'm going. Yes, with the yes. But the, the, the important point is that the only way the prejudicial error it becomes an issue, and really the paradigmatic case of what we're talking about, is where the veteran does get counsel and has reached the veterans court and has uh, identified the error in a way that's persuasive to the veterans court. Uh, but nonetheless uh, identifies no additional evidence that they would have presented. No, but there's, there's an, it seems to me that there are, are two points uh, at, at which the veteran is at a disadvantage. And, and you're talking about the second of the two. I'm talking about the first of the two. And the first of the two is the point at which the veteran, I mean, following the hearing, the, the veteran gets the notice and the veteran is, is not in a very uh, sophisticated position to evaluate what the veteran is being told. But, Yes, and a, and, a, and a claimant who in the Veterans Court can say, you know, I, I didn't understand, uh, and as a result I, I failed to present because of the defective notice and my you know, lack of understanding of uh, the statement of the case, I didn't present this important piece of evidence, and here, here's how it would have been material. Uh, in that case, uh, they would be entitled to a remand. But a remand when, you, a, when you've been saying entitled to a lawyer, do you mean entitled to a lawyer or allowed to uh, have a lawyer? Allowed to re- retain yeah. counsel. Uh, the you finish your. Oh, I, I was just going to say that given the volume of uh, cases uh, that the, the VA confronts, uh, there is a serious harm 
uh, to the system in unnecessary remands that have to be given priority over other cases uh, and that divert re resources from the adjudication of meritorious claims. Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted.